Hello and welcome to the first episode of Life in Ants. My name is Lily, and I recently completed my degree in anthropology, but I love it so much I wanted to continue engaging with the concepts and sharing them outward. One of the biggest issues facing the discipline is its exclusive cycle of academic reproduction, and this podcast is geared towards breaking down those barriers, engaging with people. They are, after all, what we study. The goal of this series is to get you thinking about your own world and applying the anthropological lens to it through the concepts we work with throughout. I really think this is the best way to learn about anthropology because theory can be, well, really dense. I want this podcast to be thought-provoking and engaging because I think anthropology is key to creating a stronger, more equitable, and compassionate future for all people. Really quickly, I would be remiss not to define anthropology since it's a question you'll get asked a lot. When I get asked this question, I always tell people it's like sociology, but with qualitative research. And that's a big oversimplification, but it is famously difficult to describe. Really, we study people, what they do, their cultures, which conveniently we define as a thing people do, and we write what's called an ethnography. I'll get into what ethnography is and how we write them in greater depth down the line, but we have to first learn a little bit, which is exciting. Get pumped. I was debating what kinds of questions to ask for the first episode. Do I go broad or do I keep it simple? The fun part of studying anthropology is that you can really ask anything that pertains to people. There's a whole world out there to study, to think about, to ask about. But today I thought I'd keep it close to home and talk about a college town. There's nothing more convenient for me to study after all, since I went to school in one. Well, kind of. Welcome to A Tale of Two Wellesleys. Let's get into it. Wellesley, Massachusetts is the third wealthiest town and the second wealthiest state in the country. It recently voted a near-perfect two-thirds majority against increasing taxes by 4% on incomes over $1 million. It is also home to Wellesley College, the premier women's college, which was founded in 1870. In today's episode, we're taking a deep dive into the relationship between students at a prestigious college and those who inhabit the town. I brought on my good friends as pseudo-interlocutors. In a full-length study, these would be people I was living alongside and who agreed to let me learn from them after I received IRB approval. But for the sake of this mini-study, I just talked to each of them for about 45 minutes to get their opinions on the matter. They also agreed to have their names presented in this project. Please do keep in mind, though, that this would be a much longer process, especially if the subject of interest took place outside of the U.S., in which case you'd need approval from the IRB in both countries. Since this is intended as entertainment as much as it is for education, I cut corners. Do as I say, not as I do. First up is Sophia. Hi, I'm Sophia, and I'm a senior at Wellesley, so I've been here for a little while now. And I have frequent interaction with people who are from the town of Wellesley because I work in the bill. I work at J.P. Licks, so I definitely interact with them a lot. J.P. Licks is an ice cream chain local to the Boston area. Their ice cream is good, but you have to be willing to spend 8 or $9 on it. She's worked there since fall of 2020, when the pandemic was in full swing. I also brought on Allie. I am currently living in the Boston area, but I lived in Wellesley for a little bit as a student. And I spent a lot of time within the community outside of Wellesley College. I am a nanny and slash a babysitter. And I did mostly babysitting over the weekends for about 25 families in the Wellesley area. Allie never worked in a business in the Ville, as the Wellesley College kids call it, but she spent more time at local homes than any of my other peers. When Sophia and Allie discuss their relationship to the subject, they are establishing what is known as their positionality. As for me and mine, 
I am also a senior at Wellesley College. I work at a luxury spin studio at the end of the Ville alongside many Wellesley natives. Our clientele is predominantly young women from the town, so I have my own preconceptions about what it means to live here. In every episode, you will hear me establish my positionality, as it is the ethical duty of the anthropologists to reflect on how that may affect their research. To begin thinking about your own is a great way to start viewing the world through the lens of an anthropologist. You'll notice that these positionalities are not terribly different from each other. Sophia and Ali are both insiders at Wellesley College by virtue of having been, at some point, enrolled, and to another degree, insiders in town, as they are integrated through their workplaces. A concept we can observe more closely through this is the contrast between emic and edic perspectives. An emic perspective is essentially an insider's view. Someone integrated into the culture being studied carries that emic perspective. But if they are an outsider studying in, they would be representing an edic perspective. The case of Sophia and Ali presents the difficulty in delineating that we often find in anthropology. It's tempting to say that they both came in emic to Wellesley College and edic to the town, as they only came to the town for the school, but that's not strictly true, especially given the case of Ali, who left Wellesley College and now comes to the town for work. While we move through this mini-study, keep in mind the ways in which the emic and edic tensions display themselves, especially in my analysis. So let's talk about the relationship between the town and the college. The relationship between uh, Wellesley College and the town of Wellesley is definitely very tense. I think that there's a lot of tension coming from both sides and a lot of disagreement coming from both sides. I think that the sense of entitlement from the Wellesley town folk definitely comes into play here. What I've noticed is that the tensions between Wellesley and the families that live in the area seem to be a lot stronger and more negative than I have experienced from the family's feelings about the student body. The town of Wellesley, yeah, I don't know. They just don't like Wellesley students, Wellesley College students. It, it doesn't make any sense because they don't like Wellesley College students, but they also can't stay away from our campus. But what I've noticed from the families I've worked with is that they genuinely love the Wellesley College students, that they don't find that they're annoying to be around. I know a lot of the families actually depend on the college for getting childcare and for working jobs. Also, just from working in the town, I don't feel like I face like direct hostility because I'm a Wellesley College student, but I feel that sometimes when people from the town ask me where I go to school or if, like if I go to Wellesley College, I kind of get a sense of like passive aggressiveness a little bit or like how or like I feel like they try to kind of write me off or like make me feel like it's not something to be proud of necessarily. To make this a unanimous three-party vote, I can confirm that in my experience, the relationship is tense and that a lot of it does take place online. But Sophia and Ali are not aligned on the nature of the tension, where it's coming from and why it exists. Blake Grumpecht from the University of New Hampshire wrote an article on college towns called The Campus as a Public Space in the American College Town, which centers around the University of Oklahoma and discusses the many uses the town of Norman finds for the campus, noting that the university hosts entertainment, like sporting events and concerts, and that the landscaping is spacious and green, much like a public park. Grumpeck asserts the centrality of campus life to the town life in Norman and paints a picture of symbiosis and harmony. So why isn't this true at Wellesley? Well, these two cases are really difficult to compare. The University of Oklahoma has a total student body of over 28,000. They service predominantly in-state students, though I'll admit, a higher percentage of out-of-state students than I expected. They're also a co-ed state school. In contrast, Wellesley College is less than 10% the size, coming in around 2,300 students, polling from across the country and around the world. 
In a staggering new statistic, I learned that just about half of the student body is fluently bilingual. And whereas the University of Oklahoma is over 60% white, Wellesley College comes in at just around 40. Never to forget also its status as a historically women's college and widespread representation of the LGBTQ community. All of this is to say there's a lot of diversity at Wellesley College and definitely more than the town is used to seeing. But the colleges are not the only difficult comparison point. Norman, Oklahoma has a median household income of around $59,000, whereas the town of Wellesley's median household income sits around $226,000. The demographic of Wellesley is definitely very affluent, very white. Affluent, white. Just you drive around and you see how wealthy people are, and then you're like looking around and you're like, this is just one type of person around this town. Looking at these demographics is a good place to start thinking about what might create rifts where there may otherwise be harmony. In this case, the case of Wellesley versus Wellesley, let's first examine the tensions themselves and then examine the structures of power that may create them. They act like they're entitled to everything on our campus and it gets really frustrating. Like during COVID, uh, we had closed off our lake path, which like people could come on campus usually and walk around the lake and walk around our campus. But for COVID reasons, like the campus was totally shut down to the public and there was just a whole uproar there and they just could not respect that. And also online, there was a big fuss about it as well in like Wellesley Town uh, Facebook groups and stuff like that, where they kind of really, really railed on Wellesley students calling us privileged. The path around the lake that was on the campus was closed off to the public, obviously for safety concerns, because there was this kind of bubble around Wellesley College, whereas um, the people in the town believed that because they paid their taxes or However, ways they contributed, they were allowed to go around the lake and tensions began to run high when that opportunity was no longer afforded to them. Out of just these families who, just like everybody else, were kind of sick and tired of being stuck inside, wanted to go on a walk with their family. And I think they addressed that and may have just been asking in a curious kind of way, when is this going to open again? In my own words... The year is 2020, and the college has tentatively reopened to the students amid the COVID-19 pandemic, who are not allowed to leave campus or invite visitors onto it. Only one student is permitted per dorm room, and if another student enters, masks must be worn. In order to increase social distancing, students are attending classes both online and in large, sometimes makeshift classrooms. I personally attended class in a chapel, where my professor lectured from the altar. The residents of the town of Wellesley are used to using the campus lake, Lake Wabin, as a walking path. But due to college guidelines about visitors on campus and their comparative lack of restrictions, they've been barred from entering. In response, they take to a Facebook group called What's Up Wellesley, which some students have joined. Usually they discuss events happening in town, but the conversation has turned to one of controversy. They assert that if they can't walk around the campus lake, we shouldn't be allowed to shop at their stores. They say, after all, they pay taxes for our campus, and we don't pay taxes for their town. Personally, I find no logic in this argument, and neither did the rest of the student body, who used their own Facebook group to discuss the frustrations they felt with the town. So, now that you've heard three versions of the story, of the great tension over Lake Wabin, Wabin Gate, we can start talking about power and privilege. Other anthropologists may advise you differently, so don't think of this as a universally acknowledged truth. But if you're ever trying to unpack the structures at play in a given circumstance and you're unsure of where to crack the surface, thinking about power and privilege is a really great place to start. So we've established that the town of Wellesley is affluent and white, two words used by both of our interlocutors. 
Wellesley College, as we also established, is diverse, including diversity of socioeconomic status and racial diversity. Keep this in mind while we briefly divert to the topic of replacement theory and purity narratives. One common phrase anthropologists use to illustrate the concept of purity is that dirt is matter out of place. This comes from a really famous book by anthropologist Mary Douglas called Purity and Danger. A really simple way of thinking about it is that dirt in the garden is not dirty, but dirt in the kitchen is. Dirt in the kitchen can infect the food, which belongs in the kitchen. You'll have to use your imagination to draw this one out, or hey, read the book. But this concept of matter out of place forms a major piece of the platform for the existence of nationalism and racism. Pure is also conveniently the prefix of Puritan, which makes this explanation really simple. A good, pure person in the U.S. context is a money-making, God-fearing, white American. The fear those pure people hold is that dirt will get in and infiltrate their way of life, ultimately destroying it. As far as the townspeople of Wellesley are concerned, the demographics that have come to attend Wellesley College, though centuries ago at the time of establishment were compatible with the town, have become dirt, and that dirt will someday replace them. So one way we can analyze the root of the tensions between Wellesley College and the town of Wellesley is through the lens of purity narratives, which operate as a structure of power. I encourage you to think of other purity narratives you encounter in your life. We'd love to discuss them on the show. Before we finish, let's think once again about our interlocutors and their respective opinions on the matter. Each with a foot in both worlds, they tend to fall on opposite sides of the problem in conversation with one another. Ali contends that the resentment stems from the college, and Sophia contends that the resentment stems from the town. Their personal relationships with the two may account for the differing opinions, but they have a concurrent understanding of the town's affluence and homogeneity as compared to the college's and agree that the tensions fall out from there. This phenomenon, a purity narrative generating fear among those in power, is not unique to colleges. It's commonly discussed in regards to country clubs, and if you're interested, there's a book on that too. It's called Wealth, Whiteness, and the Matrix of Privilege by Jessica Holden Sherwood. So to recap today, we talked about the emic and edict perspectives, positionality, what an interlocutor is, and the relationship to the work of an anthropologist, and purity narratives as they apply to the case of Wellesley College and the town of Wellesley. If you didn't get all of this on the first go, don't worry. Concepts in anthropology are complex, and learning them is an iterative process. I promise you, they will keep coming up, and soon you'll be talking about them without even noticing it. If you're interested in learning more, check out the episode notes for materials referenced throughout. Stay tuned for more episodes to come, and by all means, go ruin some parties with your newfound knowledge. Until next time, so long. Thank you.